The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Are you ready? It's From the Pod 617 Studios in Westwood, Massachusetts, it's the Boston Podcast with David Yaz and a rotating cast of characters from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. This is Hello, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, all the ships at sea, lovers, muggers, and thieves. Welcome to the Boston Podcast. My name is Dave. If you like this podcast, subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts. This is the show where we tell the stories of your city through the voices of your city. Right off the top, real quick, just want to thank our new sponsor, All Inclusive with Jay Ruderman. It's a podcast focused on inclusion and social justice. Some great interviews on that show. Check it out. Find it on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere else you find your podcast or go to allinclusivepodcast.com. My guest today is one of the great voices of Boston. Well, at least that's what I think. I mean, I guess you can be the judge, listeners. No pressure, Will. We have the founder and CEO of the Boston Schools Fund. His name is Will Austin, and he's here in the virtual studio. So, Will, thank you for joining us. How are you, my friend? I'm good. It's good to be here. And I, 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 I'm not, you know, well-versed in podcast land, and, and so I understand that people won't see the video, but... Right. I mean, David, is that a picture of you with Tom Cruise behind you? <laughs> well, Will, as a matter of fact, behind me in the studio, there is a picture of me and Tom Cruise. Yes. So, it's a funny story. My sister got suspended from school because of Tom Cruise. Wow. Well, that's probably better than it could be better than my Tom Cruise story. Do tell. So, do tell. What happened there? So when he was filming The Firm, right, they yep. they filmed some footage in Boston and some at Havoc because the, the movie stats them in law school. My sister and a couple of her friends cut school so they could see him because mm-hmm. they had released his schedule. He'd be downtown. And one of her friends got stopped by a Boston Hell reporter. Who of course, they asked, like, what are you doing here? And she gushed <laughs> that they had cut school to go right. see Tom Cruise. And then my sister got suspended from school. The next day. <laughs> see, never, Tom Cruise story. never talk to the press. Did she get? No, did I she, missed a mistake being here, David. I could say. I mean, I could, I could say something really wrong. Yeah, you you could, and I'm going to capture every moment on it, and it'll be uh, digitally preserved forever. Yeah, my Tom Cruise story is he was in Boston shooting a movie on this occasion as well. But the reason I met him was he was at a memorial, not a memorial service. It was like a celebration of life. It was an upbeat affair commemorating this lawyer who had just passed away, named Earl Cooley. He was a hero for the Church of Scientology. He that's so that's why Tom Cruise was there, and I told Tom Cruise that I've seen Risky Business five hundred times and I can't stop. And what should I do? And he said, "Just keep going, man. Just keep going." And he was he was actually very nice. I'm sure he's 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 completely crazy if you get to know him. But so yes, uh, that's the Tom Cruise story, which my listeners have heard about a thousand times. It's the abbreviated version. Okay. Yeah. In the in the lengthy version, we go out and have drinks afterwards, but that's also the phony version. So I was going to say how much I mean how much <laughs> you know, never let the facts get in the way of a good story, that's David. Right. It's right. But if you're faced with a choice between the legend and the facts, print the legend. Anyway, speaking of legends, you've doing some legendary work for the Boston's Schools Fund and 
I know a little bit just from kind of perusing the the basic info on Boston School Fund. I know you make investments to increase the access to schools for students, historically marginalized groups, etc. But tell tell us in a nutshell what you do. Yeah, you know what we do now is you know pretty straightforward. We do we do a couple things. One is that we do a bunch of research to identify schools in Boston, you know, there's over 200 schools in Boston. So when I say schools, I mean, every type of school, we find schools that have strong outcomes for kids, particularly kids of color and kids with special needs. And for those schools, we kind of offer to help them expand their enrollment. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of like the core of what we do. You know, it sounds pretty simplistic, but you know, there's been, there are lots of attempts in education to make reforms and change policies, but our kind of approach has always been nothing beats a good school. And so if we can just have more and more good schools serving more and more kids, that's the most direct route to for kids to have access to high quality educational opportunities. So that's a big chunk of our work is identifying those schools and giving them grants and giving them technical support. Another big piece of work we do is that we try to be a kind of a trusted source of information on schools in the city. And so we do that really through through two things. One is we started and maintained something called Boston School Finder which is the only kind of online comprehensive guide to schools in the city that allows families to kind of understand the enrollment process and pick a best fit school for their child. And until we made that in 2017, nothing like that existed. And so we kind of run this website instead of tools to help prospective families decide, you know, what's the right school for my kid. But then also, if you've ever been through the enrollment process in Boston, which I have been as a kid and as a parent, you know, when are the forms due? What's the mm -hmm. deadline for the open house, all that stuff and putting it in one place and having it translated so everyone can have access. And the second thing we do more so now is stuff like this, David, which is we're trying to kind of inform decision makers and the general public more so about important issues in education. And, and again, always focused on student outcomes and student well-being. You know, and then, you know, and then like any other organization, we got to watch the shop, right? We got to make sure we hire and recruit good people, hire and recruit a great board, and just kind of do the work to keep the lights on. But that's what we do. So I'm taking a quick look at Boston School Finder, mm -hmm. and it it seems like a very robust tool. You can go on here. You can you can search by location, how close you are yep. to the given school, by grade, by mm -hmm. by start time, which is mm -hmm. is important for working parents, of course. What? But what I this, here's my first dumb question is how many parents have the luxury of actually being able to choose a school rather than being restricted to whatever uh, district they, you know, they sit in? It's a, it's a really good question, David. And what's interesting about Boston is Boston going back really till 1974 has been a school system that relies on family choice. And so you're absolutely right in the large majority of both mostly towns and suburbs, but even cities, kids are geocoded mm -hmm. where you live is where you go to school. And there's a whole separate conversation about the roles of residential segregation, redlining, and, and other dynamics that have played into that. But in Boston, for the last over four, almost 40 years, families have had to execute some kind of choice, even if they're attending the traditional Boston public schools, about what school in your zone or in this new system, which school is closest to you that you'd prefer. So whether you're going to a Boston public school, entering a chattel lottery, or putting in an application for Metco or an application for a private school, like every family in the city is required to have some choice in this process. Mm -hmm. And to get right to it, David, the, of course, when you create choice, you also often have inequality of opportunity and social capital, 
right? And so when we were thinking about doing this back in 2017, we really wanted to create a tool that leveled the playing field for families because not everyone has access to the same social networks, the same level of information. And so we want to be make sure that all families had access to understanding how to pick a best fit school for your child, but then also how do I go out and actually enroll in that one. So how involved do you get in this? So there are, there are, how many schools will, will I find on bostonschoolfinder.org? I think 225, I think. But I mean, okay. the term school is tough too, because that's <clears throat> not inclusive of early childhood centers, you know, which, you know, for, you know, our schools, but, you know, are not typically kind of listed in that category for whatever reason, because they, you know, go from, let's say, like grade zero, you know, age zero to age three or four. But, you know, they're, they're, there are a lot of options for families. And, and, you know, the purpose of the site is is not to tell folks what to do, right? Mm-hmm. In fact, when we designed the website, you know, we went, we, we, we did surveys, polls of parents, we did individual, we did like 75 individual interviews with parents and nonprofits to like understand how people chose their schools so we could create something that matched the process instead of saying this is what you should do this is how it should work we kind of learn from that process about how people do it and we try to make something that supported people in that kind of that natural process how many of these schools have you actually been to i think i've been in i lost count because of course i haven't been in a school building now in 14 to 15 months but mm. i think i was up to 82 of the boston schools mm. i've been in yeah. 82 or it was in the eighties, I think. So in addition to offering that, and by the way, that's Boston school org. If you are in search of a school, well, how many, sorry, how do you determine how to give grants? Because I take it, that's probably a big part of your job. You, you collect donations yeah. and then, so what goes into that process? Yeah. And the correct word there, David is process. I think a lot of times we make mistakes, not just in public policy, but, it, but in life and having, you know, very specific targets, a very specific way you make decisions. And so we have a process that gets us to a point where we want to find a fit or a match because there may be schools that are really high quality that don't want to work with us or don't want to add kids. So this is all about kind of finding that match. And first thing we do is we, you know, we traffic in a lot of data, you know, both for the school finder site, but for our own work. And so we've got a ton of data on student outcomes in schools. It's the first thing we do in a typical year is we look across all the schools in the city and we ask ourselves a basic question. What schools seem to have really strong outcomes or leading indicators for outcomes for kids? And it's not a small list. There's a lot of stuff that goes on there. So it's not, you know, they're the more traditional kind of test score type stuff and graduation rates and that sort of thing. But we look at absentee rates. We look at teacher tenure, like all the things that you know, we can get our hands on to say, you know, is this school seem like it's trending in the right direction in terms of outcomes? And then we also look at parent demand and family demand, like how many families are actually picking the school because that's often the strongest single you need. That's the first step. Mm-hmm. Second step is you got to peel back the layer a little bit because, you know, averages are deceiving. You know, and, and Boston is a great place in many ways, and it is also an infamous place in the sense that it's one of the most in, unequal cities in the country, if not the world. And so you can be looking at a school that looks great on the surface and you peel back the layer and you say, oh, there's a very big gap in literacy rates between white and black children or the high school graduation rate for students with special needs is actually quite low and so we look to make sure schools are serving all of their kids well not just a subset Mm -hmm. and then after that a normal year we we send an email make a phone call and we visit and we say we want to see your school want to learn more about you and and if there's interest we kind of go through a process to figure out is there a way 
that we can do two things for a school. Can we give you a check, but also bring a shovel, right? Mm. That's the way we think about it. Mm. If you, if adding kids means you just have to knock down a wall, great. That one's kind of easy. We can help pay for that. If adding kids means that you're adding a new sixth grade next year. And so you need to do research on grade six grades, like, great, we're going to pay for your teachers to go to trainings and go visit classrooms and other schools and that sort of thing. And so it's a pretty kind of practical approach. And each one of those kind of relationships and grant agreements are very different. They're very much based on the school themselves. So year to date, we've worked with 38 schools across the city, 26 traditional Boston public schools, eight charter schools, and four private or Catholic schools. And they're in every neighborhood, every grade level. And, you know, we intentionally want to work with schools that are diverse because families want different things. Mm-hmm. There's no such thing as the perfect fit or great school for every kid and every educator. It's all about finding a fit. And so we work with Boston Arts Academy, we work with Margarita Muniz, which is a dual language school. You know, we work and we work with schools that you would call more traditional. And, and that's OK, because there are families that and educators that want that model. Mm-hmm. I'm curious as to how you got in this, because well, usually I ask my guests where they grew up. It, it's, it's fairly obvious <laughs> where you grew up. <laughs> yeah, I, I had I had 75 percent of my Boston accent removed in the in the 80s. Um, it was a painless procedure. No, yeah. mine still comes out sometimes, but I grew up in the Burbs. I know you went to Boston. What part of Boston did you grow up in? Let's start I'm with I'm from Dorchester. Okay. I am I am, I'm still in Boston. I live in Rosendale now. So I'm okay. still in the city, just a different pot. Yeah, I mean, I've, you know, blessing, curse, never lived anywhere else. Um, you know, and so you get to know one thing really well. And so, you know, I Wait. still learn everything every day. But the one thing I do know well is the city. Went to Boston Latin. You went on to Harvard. Yeah. Those wicked, wicked smart kids in, in Cambridge. And I'll ask you the obvious question. You can do so much with a Harvard degree and what, what you're doing is noble and wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But did you ever have aspirations to go to a different part of the country to get into something different? Because it seems like it seems like mo- much of your career, you've you've actually you've worked to make schools better, right? Yeah, that, that kind of came late for me. I mean, the quick aside, of course, is that the the when I was at when I was in college, unfortunately, my work study job, which I did for four years, is I was I was a custodian. Like I cleaned other. Oh my bathrooms. God! You were Will Hunting. No, well, that movie well, came well, that, out well, while I was in college. That oh was an incredibly God. challenging period of time. Um, it was just kind of like put coins in Will and see if he says something funny for a good couple months there. No, so I've never lived anywhere else, and you know I think like a lot of kids who grew up in this city, you know, if you've got families where you know you work you know, you're, you may be the first generation of a kid to go to college. You grow up potentially in a household like I did where education was super important. So from a really early age, you know, my mom and dad, it was very important to us that, you know, we did well in school and we were studious and, you know, respectful of teachers and all that stuff. And so that stuff, you know, schools do a big part of all this, but a lot of it does start at home. And so, you know, I, you know, I went, I went to Boston Latin and, you know, I would say that, I was a little bit older when it came clear to me, but remember, I remember very distinctly that when I, when I took the Latin test, because the, that there's a, until this time, there's been a test you had to take to kind of get in. Mm. And I took that test while the Charles Stewart scandal was happening. Oh, right. Right. Of course. And it's, it's interesting. Like I remember telling the story before in the last couple of years. And a lot of times folks who aren't even from, I'm from the Boston area had never heard of it. You know, I think it, it's referenced in Isabel Wilkerson's cast book. And so since that book has come out a year ago, I've noticed that people know the story better now. But for folks listening, I mean, there's this horrible, horrible incident in our city's history where, you know, a white man 
you know, basically did this incredibly complicated suicide, murder, insurance scandal thing right. with he his wife in Mission Hill. Shot shot his wife and yeah. then blamed it on a a black person who had who had a, a fictional person he he dreamed up. Yeah. And yeah. and then eventually it became clear he was lying and and he jumped off the, up the Tobin bridge. Off the Tobin bridge. And it's yeah. such a horrible story, yeah. an awful story. You don't think it's made up, but it's true. And you know, I remember at the time that you know the the you know, the police were stopping and frisking kids on the street and mm. adults on the street. Like if you were a black male, you were just being stopped and being basically accused that you did this. And you know, I it's burned in my mind that I took the test for that school while this was all happening. Yeah. And so, you know, in a city where where opportunity is really demarcated by neighborhood and by race a lot of times you know when you're 10 or 11 years old you may not recognize as you get older and you kind of like have more experience you notice it and so you know when i was in college i started doing some kind of tutoring work with kids and specifically with kids from the city of boston and i became really interested in doing education kind of later and I mean, honestly, David, like I'm not really a great student. I mean, a lot of folks that go into education kind of fit into one of two categories. They're the kind of person that like, you know, pretend to be a teacher for their cousins, or there are people that, you know, schooling came a little bit later to them. And like, I definitely struggled for my first three or four years in high school. You know, Boston Line's a six-year school. And it was only really much later when I had great teachers and I kind of grew up a little bit that I kind of understood what it meant to be a good student. And so I felt like some real interest in, kind of getting into schools and kind of doing work that was really would do work for kids schools who schools don't typically serve well which are students that come to schooling later in life and in and, and, and a lot of times historically marginalized kids and so I didn't have a teaching degree though mm-hmm. like I didn't I didn't have a teaching background I just kind of I tutored as a kind of volunteer program and so I got a fellowship for a year my first year out of college I worked at an organization called Stepping Stone uh, which is still around now and does great work it's kind of a after school and summer enrichment program for kids in Boston to get them placed into higher performing schools. You know, after a little bit of time there, I just knew I wanted to teach. And so still not licensed, sent my resume and Cavaletta to, you know, every school in the city. And one of the very few people got back to me was this guy named John King, not CNN, Dorchester, John King, different John King. Okay. I met John, I visited the school Roxbury prep, and I said I would do anything to work for him and work there. He made me apply for multiple jobs, wouldn't hire me. But then a math teacher quit. So that's how I became a middle school math teacher, David. And, you know, that relationship with John became incredibly significant because not only did I get to work with him and help build an amazing school and schools over 13 years, you know, John went on to become President Obama's Secretary of Education. Mm-hmm. So just give you like a shorthand on how oh, okay. lucky yeah. I was at the age of 21 to be mentored and coached by someone who had that level of talent and drive. You know, I just kind of picked it up from people I was lucky enough to work with. And so... I really enjoyed working in schools, became a principal, ran a network of schools. And so, you know, had this experience of really knowing that you can make schools that work for all kids. And kind of last turn of the story is that I guess now we're in June. So about seven years ago, I spoke at a conference, you know, and people had asked about our experience in Boston and what you've done. And, you know, not knowing any better, I kind of shot my mouth off (laughs) and kind of said, you know, at that time, Deval Patrick was stepping down. Walsh had only been mayor for a couple months, superintendent just resigned. And I kind of said, you know, we should just rethink the way we do schooling right now. We should stop these fights around policies, initiatives. We should focus on kids and those stuff I've really felt and thought. And then a lot of people started calling me mm. and said, I saw you speak at that thing. Like that yeah. was interesting. Mm-hmm. And I was busy like running 
couple of schools at the time and running around and I didn't put much thought into it, but a couple of them persistent. And I think you know, the person I would really point to is, you know, late Carolyn Lynch, you know, her husband, Peter Lynch, you know, she was just insistent. She's like, you have a really good idea here. Like you need to work on this. You think about it. The executive director of their foundation, Katie Everett, really kind of pushed me and said, like, this is something you should think about doing. Wrote a business plan on nights and weekends and then launched, I guess now it'll be six years ago in July. And since then, you know, we've been able to work with those 38 schools and those 38 schools are in the process of adding 8,000 kids to their schools. Wow. So that's it. So maybe there's a longer version you expected, David, but you know. That's okay. I have an ed- editing team to take care of that. No, it's <laughs> no, it's no, it's an interesting tale, and, it, and I think important that you describe it because it's not your your typical organization. It's not your typical path that you took. No. How how do you? I think it's important for people to know how how can they help you? How do you raise money? I take it through a lot of traditional ways, but tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, we you know we do have to raise money for what we do, like any other nonprofit. You know, I think we're a little bit interesting in the sense that like we we don't run. I mean, aside from School Finder, we don't run a lot of programming, right? And so it's not like we do an annual dinner or anything okay. like that. You know, I think like the the immediate ask I would say is that you know anyone who's interested in our works just go and sign up for our newsletter on our website, bostonschoolsfund.org, because as much as you know it matters to me that we get financially supported, and sure anyone can send an email to me at contact and send that. I mean, the thing that I am most concerned about now, especially in 2021, is ensuring that you know education and specifically education for historically marginalized kids is at the center of our civic conversation. In 2009, education was the number one issue in the mayor's race in Boston. In 2013, it was number one. Mm. 2017, it was three. And this past September, it pulled fifth. Mm. So for me, like that's the water I swim in. If we don't have voters and families that see the value and their agency in education, then it makes it incredibly difficult for us to make progress. And so I guess my ask above all is just to, for folks to follow our work and kind of educate themselves and advocate to make sure that this issue is kind of central to life in Boston, because, you know, we can't be a world-class city without a world-class and equitable education system. Like those two things are coming hand in hand. And, you know, given the lower interest in it, the declining child population in the city, you know, I'll just raise the alarm that I'm worried about whether or not this will kind of stay at the center of, of the city's priorities and it needs to stay there. It's Will Austin. It's not Will Hunting, even though he was a custodian at, at Harvard. Actually, Will in the movie was a custodian at MIT. At MIT. Yeah. Actually, somewhere. Some, for some reason, took the red line past his house. Never understood that part. It's like he should have gotten off already. Why is he going that way? <laughs> I think they took some uh, yeah. poetic license. You can't see there's a tile behind me, but it's the uh, it's the Robin Williams painting from. Uh, sure Good is. Good that was really my second. That's why. I mean, that's kind of why I worked it in. I mean, I know it's Tom Cruise, and I think he yeah. calls him Whitey in the in the movie. That's right. Yeah. Right. But well, no, you're confu- You might be confusing this one over here is from Goodfellas. It's the painting that Joe Pesci's oh, mom right. made. But, right. but over here, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's there. right. There you go, right yeah. there. That's it's the like one. like fake Homer Winslow. Yeah, that's right. And Will exposes Robin Williams as a poor painter, but then unwittingly. Can we go uh, back to the Goodfellas painting? Is that the yes. part where they're in her kitchen? Yeah, yeah of course. You know, yeah. it's that lovable tale, the three pals that, that beat a guy to death in a bar, and they killed Joey Bats, is that his name? And then they bury him. they're on his way to burying him, but they stop by. Joe Pesci's mom starts cooking for them at three in the morning, and 
she produces this painting, which became this lovable symbol. And, and you remember the, what wo- the woman who played Joe Pesci's mom is a relative of someone yeah, in that movie. You're I right. Remember who though? It might. It, I don't know if that was Scorsese's mom or perhaps, but but I remember that as well. I, I wish I could remember who, but. Yeah, so it's it's one of the and you, listeners, of course, you can't see it, but on the various tiles, some of them completely random, some of them the shows we produce at Pod Six One Seven. But yes, from that, it's the it's the old guy sitting in a boat with uh, one dog's go looking this way. One guy's putting that one. One dog's looking the other way. Right? Yeah. And this and this guy's going. Uh, what do you want from me? What do you want from me? <laughs> <laughs> Very good. So again, Will Austin with Boston Schools Fund. Go to bostonschoolsfund.org for more info on how you can help. And visit bostonschoolfinder.org if you're looking for a school. I'm telling you, it looks like a fantastic tool. When we uh, come back, we'll play a quick round of good stuff where both Will and I will recommend something good to brighten your day. But first, we'll take a little break. See you on the other side in just about a minute. Hi, I'm Jay Ruderman. All Inclusive is a podcast focused on inclusion and social justice. Join me as I interview leaders and experts on the latest news focused on advocacy for social justice. In order to make progress that will lead to a more equitable future, honest discussions must be held. That is what All Inclusive is all about. Listen and subscribe to the All Inclusive podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, and anywhere else podcasts are available. Visit the show website for more information and full episode transcripts at www.allinclusivepodcast.com. Well, welcome back. We continue with Will Austin from the Boston Schools Fund. You've now had at least you know 47 seconds to prepare for this, Will. So you ready for a quick round of good stuff? I'm ready. All right, let's do it. Dave, play the intro. Hit the button. Oh, here it is. Here we go. Oh, that's the good stuff. The intro to good stuff features Robin Williams from Goodwill Hunting. He says that's what he misses, all the little imperfections of his departed wife. He says that's the good stuff. So, see, maybe you didn't know everything about that movie, Will. Anyway. Anyway, well, you're the you're the guest. I kid because I love you. Get to go first. Can you recommend something to our listeners that might brighten their day? Brightens is a strong word, man. Oh, I think no. we've we've had a, you know we've all had to f- figure out kind of ways to spend our time and think about things different in the last fifteen months. Sure. And so this is going to sound, I think, a little like severe, but you know, I, I've been you know I'm also over forty now. I've got three young kids, so I've been thinking a lot about like longevity, right, mm. and, like staying healthy. And so I, I, I finished a book called Lifespan by okay. David Sinclair. It's, it's kind of heavy at the beginning. There's a lot of science in it, but basically it's trying to explain like the science of aging and like stuff that you can do in your behaviors and your eating, you know, to, to live longer, you know, pretty practical, but you know, you know, I, I just, you know, if anything, the last couple of years has taught us to be grateful for the time we have and you want to have as much time as you can. And so I enjoyed it. In fact, I heard about it on another podcast, which I was listening to, and I don't want to make it competitive with your podcast. Well, that's okay. But if you want to get in the bright stage, I am kind of, I've become very obsessed with this podcast called Smartless, which is co-hosted by Will Arnett, Jason Bateman, and Sean Hayes. I've heard about this one. Yeah, this has been recommended to me too. It is, it is really, I mean, not as good as this, close second, but it, it's- it's really fun because they're three very good friends and like 
as I think a little bit about the last year, like there's something kind of fun and comforting about having three friends share a conversation. Cause like, you don't get, mm-hmm. we haven't got to do that as much and more so now. And it's also got like a little bit of like that Hollywood insidery type stuff. Cause they like interviewed George Clooney and, but they also have other guests on like they had Megan Rapinoe on and Stacey Abrams. And mm-hmm. so like, it's a very like interesting group and they're just really funny. And so, yeah, like when I, t- I usually do a longer run on Sundays or Mondays and when they release their new one, I, I listen to it. And that's been like that for a couple months now. Well, that's the way you're supposed to listen to podcasts when, whenever you can, when you exercise yeah. or when you're in the car. I, I've, over, over the pandemic, podcast listening actually had a slight dip. And I was afraid really? because, well, because most people listen in their car and there was no place to drive. Oh, got it, got it, got but, it, yes. but made a quick rebound. And over the past year, podcast listening has been up. And I've heard really good about things about this one. It sounds like just what you kind of want in a, in a podcast. You, you like the, the famous stuff, but that can run dry. Our, our Boston brethren, Bill Burr, for example, I listened to his for right. a while and it was good. I mean, he's, he's charming to use the term kind of loosely and strangely, but, yes. uh, but, but, but he has some charm to him. He is, he is kind of abrasive, but his act can run a little thin sometimes. And these guys, it sounds great. And so you got to have a mix of kind of down to earthness, but then also it doesn't hurt to have a celebrity or two. And the, the book you mentioned, yeah, it's life lifespan. Yeah. Why we age and why we don't have to. And I noticed when I called it up on Amazon.com, it, of course, came with an ad for some kind of big tub of vitamin nutrients. Supplements. Supplements. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I, know. I mean, like, it's funny, like, <laughs> yeah, you can do that stuff, but, like, there's some really kind of basic theories about it in, in a weird way because it's scientific in a lot of parts. It's very kind of, like, inspirational. Like, it kind of thinks about age as, like, kind of like a chronic disease to manage. And if hmm. you do certain things, you get to live longer. So that sounds good. Now, do, do you think that the lifespan of humans will continue to go up. And so eventually will people live until they're 200 years old or. I mean, I mean, I think, I mean, if I remember correctly, I have to go like check my, my notes, but I mean, I do think that there's a certain kind of like upper limit on the kind of shelf life of tissue. So like, mm-hmm. wow, this is getting really specific. <laughs> but like, well, I feel like, I think my guess is that the, based on whether the science is right and things move, like, it'll be far more typical for folks to live over a hundred, you know, and the way my mind kind of goes too, like I start thinking a lot about population and retirement and labor markets. Like there are kind of like big policy and like life implications to that shift mm-hmm. as we become like an older planet. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it tracks that that'll happen. And then the question will be like, well, what does that mean for work? And does that mean for family size and all this other stuff? But it's, mm-hmm. Anyways, if you don't want to read the book, you can at least listen to the Smart List podcast episode, which will explain it much more succinctly than I just did. And just to translate for those listening outside of the Boston area, it, the name of the podcast is Smart yeah, Smart List. <laughs> That's okay. You know, I love it. I, I speak it. Yeah. So I'll recommend something far less literary and high-minded, but but it's pretty good so far. I've been watching this Mike Tyson documentary oh i've on, heard about this yeah it's on hulu and i'm only through the first part of part one i guess it's a it's a two-parter and uh, some new stuff on mike tyson maybe we didn't know let's take a quick listen and well you can look at the trailer oh, to uh mike tyson the knockout here it is i've been listening to people tell me i wasn't going to do anything with my life Mike is a complicated individual. He looked like he could kill somebody. Mike Tyson was called the baddest man on the planet because he was the baddest man on the planet. 
I was terrified by that brother. He was a money-making machine. I never knew what Tyson I was going to get. His was the most recognizable face on the planet. More than the Pope, more than Queen Elizabeth, more than the President. There were three black men who ruled the world during this time. It was Michael Jordan, Michael Jackson, and it was Mike Tyson. And everybody wanted to be Mike. The only question was, which Mike do you want to be? <laughs> when you think about Mike Tyson in the ring, he was unbeatable. But outside the ring... The only person that defeated him was him. And I, I haven't gotten that far, but I'm not sure if that was the voice of his ex-wife, Robin Givens. But the, one of the voices you heard yeah. there was actress Rosie Perez. Who Perez, you, you, I yeah, recognize Yeah, that. you might yeah. say, what the hell is she doing in there? They grew up in the same neighborhood, apparently, in Brooklyn. And, where, and it was, uh, I forget what it's called, but the worst part of Brooklyn. And so you hear stories of Mike Tyson getting picked on as a kid, which is unfathomable now. And also how he, he found solace in raising pigeons and taking care of pigeons, which is, I guess, a real Brooklyn thing. Kind of interesting stuff. So I haven't gotten to the part yet where things really go awry for Mike, but there is some stuff in there I didn't know about him. So even if you're not into boxing, it, it really is more of a character study of you know where he came from. Just a horrible, horrible up, upbringing and quasi homeless and abused and all that kind of stuff. So, anyway, yeah, complex. Yeah. It's just amazing yeah. how much you know boxing was central to like sports life in the eighties, right? Like that, I mean, you kind of forget that. Yeah, you know, we were. I was actually talking about this on a podcast yesterday because we were happened to be talking about the music of nineteen seventy eight and setting the stage. We, there was a news note of the happenings of nineteen seventy eight. And it was about how affirmed the horse had won the, I think, the Triple Crown with jockey Steve Cawthon. And me and my podcast partner both re- remembered that. that was, there was a time when boxing and horse racing were so much more important than they are now. And so and yeah. Tyson kind of came in on the tail end of that. But he was, I mean, and sometimes I feel like, why do we need to know that much about Mike Tyson, a guy who could punch hard? But, but <clears throat> there was more to him. And... <clears throat> for better or for worse, we're always going to have fascination with greatness. And I don't know if you're you're too young, Will, but to watch him fight was just like watching a machine, you know? Yeah, and it's and with sports, it's always about a story, right? It's all about stories. I mean, you know, you can get into the actual mechanics, statistics, and and the actual performance, but you know, people form allegiance to teams and such because of story and because of the people. Like that's what they follow. For sure. Yeah, which is why we are, have killed ourselves telling the story about that quarterback, a backup quarterback from Michigan who wasn't taken until the sixth round, the 199th pick of the It's, it's, it's of a the hell draft. of a story. It is. It's a hell of a story. <laughs> it's not bad. I don't like the way it's turned recently, but I can live with it. Anyway, yeah. well, <laughs> we could we could go on forever here. Will, thank you so much, and I hope you had a good time on the Boston Podcast. Did we leave anything out? No, no, this has been, this has been fun. Thanks, David. Thanks for making this easy, and thanks for, you know, this, this didn't feel like this just felt like talking to someone for a bit. So I liked it. Thanks. That's what good podcasting is. You and I could be the next Will Arnett and Jason Bateman. And I forgot Sean the Hayes. third. Sean Hayes. Sorry, Sean Hayes. I don't think either of us have the Lego Batman voice to pull That's that right. off. But maybe you can try. That's right. Will Arnett. Thank you very much. And thank you for listening to the Boston Podcast. Thanks to our sponsor, the All-Inclusive Podcast. Find that anywhere you find your pods. If you like us, please subscribe to us on Boston on. 
Apple Podcast. And if you want your own podcast, by the way, go to pod617.com to get started. We produce podcasts at the Boston Podcast Network. Have I said podcast enough? Well, it is a podcast. On behalf of Will, my new best friend, this is Dave. I'm just a guy from Boston like him. But if you're not from Boston, you must be the other guy. Have a great day, everybody. Boston,